Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're starting a new series. A brand new series. Uh, it's that time of year. It's time for our Oscar series. Well, what year are we doing, Diana? What year did we land upon? So we had one that we've talked about a couple of times. We just kind of came kept being like eh, nah. and then with our 90 series it just made sense for us to go ahead and do it and that is 1991 what a fun year for movies oh yeah we have you know we say this every year there's a wide variety of movies i have to give the academy credit mm-hmm. there are a lot of years that have a whole lot of varied unique movies that get included mm-hmm. and this is definitely one of them First of all, this is the year that Beauty and the Beast broke through. Yep. So it's already a big year. Movies that came out this year that we're not talking about because we've seen before. Hook. Yeah. Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. This was a huge year for technical achievements, for one thing. Mm-hmm. With T2 being just this mind-blowing, completely new take on special effects. But But the movies that we're going to talk about for this series are all really really different yeah it's just one of those years where there wasn't a runaway hit where it's like well that's gonna win everything that's gonna sweep so much stuff in terms of nominations and so there's a lot of stuff here that we collectively have not seen and it's still very recent when you think about it i mean it's only 91 And so we're going to start with maybe the most notoriously different Oscar nominee of all time. Yes, we are starting with The Silence of the Lambs. A young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. Yeah. I have seen a scene of this movie. Okay. I thought I had seen more. I had not. Uh-huh. And I think part of it was edited, but like even then, I I don't know why I never sat I it this is right up my alley. Right up my alley. Oh, I love yeah. psychological horror. And I had definitely seen bits of it like the edited version for TV, and then I definitely saw it in high school. Um it has a memorable uh, a piece of rite of passage, we'll say. In my youth. <laughs> okay, I still don't know how to feel about this movie. Okay, what, what what's making you feel like, like <sighs> ambiguous? It's, I mean, it's it's very good. Let, let, let's start out there. I'm not I'm not saying like it's bad in any way, but there's something about this movie that it's so hyped mm-hmm. with such a huge like legacy for horror. Sure. And to me, it feels kind of flat. Well, I think there was there. I'm I, I've not read the source material. Because it is based on a book. Absolutely. There is a world in which the film is more about Clarice and Hannibal versus the case. Or there's a film where it's just about this case. And I feel like they tried to split the difference a little bit. And I think that's why it falls flat. I This could very easily be a case of too many, too much hype. Okay. Too much hype for a movie that is very, very well done. Mm-hmm. And yet, then I read all the trivia and went, oh, shit, there's so much that they're doing that just blows past you on the first viewing. Mm -hmm. And in particular, 
again, we say it could focus on more between the relationship between Lecter and Clarice, more on, you know, the Buffalo Bill. And instead, the choice is to make it about Clarice, Mm -hmm. which is actually really smart. Oh, it it takes it into a, you know, a a crime solving film and really makes it more about her journey through this crime, which is so interesting. It's also a remarkably sensitive film for a serial killer slasher. Sure. That's not shocking to me, given who directed this film. Mm hmm because of what he's directed in the past and what he kind of does with those things. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, there's a reason that this movie lasts on and on, and I think part of it is because it forces you to have to watch it multiple times to really absorb what it's getting at. Uh The budget for this film was $19 million. Okay. That's That's about $41 million in today's money. And you'll... I'm I'm going to give those quotes here, but you can kind of guess that it's about a little more than twice the budget for 1991 that's about the the percentage range than what we have okay it grossed 130 million seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the u.s alone that's 285 million Mm -hmm. globally it grossed 273 million which is almost 600 million dollars it made its budget back in the first week of its release that feels so much like get out (laughs) It was one of the most shocking runaway hits of 1991, Mm -hmm. and that is one of the biggest reasons that it got so much notoriety and acclaim. Hmm. Now, a a good chunk of that is is also because what a really dark, twisted story, and yet executed so well, Mm -hmm. because critics also agreed, what a great movie. Mm -hmm. It is so fascinating, because there, there are lots of these movies that are huge runaway successes of what could be seen by some as really pulpy novels. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Harris's novels are pulpy. I haven't read them. But just like knowing some of the subject matter of things, I'm like, no, he, he really does take huge efforts to like get into the psychology of it. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, this is not a typical movie to make such a huge amount of money, especially when it's not like they threw the kitchen sink at this movie. Yeah. And they didn't need to. It's left a gigantic legacy. Um, it is preserved in the National Film Registry. Mm-hmm. Clarice has been named as the sixth greatest hero in movie history on AFI's list. Ooh, I love um, it. She's also the highest ranked female on that list. Ooh, love it. And Lecter was chosen as the greatest movie villain on AFI's list. That feels right. Maybe. I need to see. I need to see more of the contenders. But see, I don't consider him a villain. That's part of my problem. Oh, he absolutely is. I consider him an anti-hero. Uh, that, he, uh no, because he's not the bad guy. He's not the bad guy in this film, but he is a bad guy. Well, yes. So there is no gray area in him being good or bad. But to be to be honest, I agree with our director's take on Lecter, which is not that he is a bad guy. No. Oh. Uh, despite the incredible reviews of the film, there is a notorious horror hater mm. who gave the film two stars out of five. Okay. One, Gene Siskel. Oh, Siskel, yeah. Yeah. Now, Siskel gives a quote that I don't completely disagree with. Okay. Although I wouldn't put it as harshly as he does. Okay. Quote, Dem, our director, superheats the Silence of the Lambs to the point of silliness in terms of both gross behavior and a pulsating soundtrack. The conclusion of the film is nothing more than a grisly version of every mad slasher picture you've ever missed. Jody's in trouble. 
shoot, Jody, shoot, unquote. And again, while I would not put it quite as harshly as Siskel does, Mm -hmm. there are times in the movie where it does feel really overdone. Hmm. That's not to say that that's coming from the cast at all. It's the way it's filmed. Hmm. There's something overwrought about it. And again, that's a little bit of who our director is Mm -hmm. that brings that to it. Again, I would not give this movie two stars out of five, and you will not see me doing that later on here. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't I don't completely disagree that there's a little, I don't know, overdoneness to how this movie was made. Okay. Maybe. Hold on to it. Let's we'll talk about that when we get to directing. Yeah. Siskel believed that a far superior depiction of a serial killer was the movie Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer starring Michael Rooker that had come out a few years before and that this film seemed to be far more of camp and gothic horror. So he he said, you know, everybody's claiming that this is such a great serial killer movie. This other movie came out before this and it's mm-hmm. way better for that. Okay. However, Siskel was one of the very few critical voices and then it became a massive hit and Ebert loved the movie, put mm-hmm. it in his great movies list. Interesting. Okay. And ridiculed Siskel over the take for years following hmm. because Siskel missed the boat. I mean, fair. Not something we have to dig into deeply, but I think that's an interesting thing to think about when we get to directing here. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I feel that way or if it's requiring me to go watch it a few more times hmm. before I really get into the depth of what they did here. Now, the movie was originally supposed to be released in 1990, but Orion had another movie that it was trying to promote for the Oscars in 1991, Mm -hmm. that being Dances with Wolves. So, Orion delayed it for a January 1991 release, and that is why it is coming first. For Oscar series, we do them in their chronological release order. Mm -hmm. Orion at one point considered burying it as direct-to-video because they didn't know how to market the subject matter. Mm Mm-hmm. And eventually, they pushed it to Valentine's Day weekend. Love it. That was when this movie was released. Mm -hmm. It stayed at number one for five weeks. They had no clue they had a hit on their hands. And I can't completely blame them. Mm -hmm. Because to be fair, movies after this have always kind of taken the same formula. A lot of times, the best movies have taken it, then twisted it, and morphed it into its own complete, unique horror genre. Mm-hmm. But this was the first of its kind. Hmm. So how do you make it work? <laughs> yeah. And the movie, of course, went completely against conventional wisdom that you could release a movie early in the year and maintain Oscar consideration at the end of the year. Oh, yeah. It's harder, but it's not impossible. It's one of the, it's one of the few movies to really buck that trend. Mm-hmm. And one of the first modern movies to do it where producers were like, you know... We could maybe pull something off if we think we've got a hit. Yeah. Of course, you have to have a hit. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about our writing. First of all, we have to talk about a gentleman named Thomas Harris, who created the character of Hannibal Lecter. Mm. He wrote the novels. So he wrote the novels, The Silence of the Lambs, its prequel, Red Dragon, and its sequels, Hannibal and the origin story, Hannibal Rising. He mm. also wrote the disaster thriller, Black Sunday. Our screenplay writer is a gentleman named Ted Talley. Before this, he has very few credits on his name, but after this, he wrote The Juror, All the Pretty Horses, and Red Dragon. He also consulted 
on Shrek 2, Madagascar, and Shrek the Third. So I think he does a lot of writing consulting work, not just punch up, but like also do working within rooms and things like that. Hmm. What do we think of the writing of this film? I think the writing is very good. It does take its time, but I feel like the small things pay off and they're really trying to show the audience um, and not so much get one over them, but really go on this journey with Clarice. Like there's not a moment where I feel like at the beginning you can go, oh, I'm going to figure this out before her. No, you're going to figure it out with her. And yes, they do show us, you know, the Buffalo Bill guy doing what he does. But for her, we go on that journey with her, which is really great. It doesn't make her appear inept in any way. Just uh, she's still kind of new. And that's that's enjoyable. Um, It's kind of refreshing. It's interesting to compare and contrast this with a movie like Seven. Okay. Which I saw first. Okay. And I kind of wish I hadn't. <laughs> mm. They're very different movies. They're structured very differently. I do agree that I think what makes this movie f- really fascinating, especially in its writing, is that we are focused on Clarice. Mm-hmm. We are focused on her perspective into this case. And for all of the hoopla made about Hannibal Lecter, mm-hmm. he is a secondary character. Oh, yeah. He is a huge looming figure throughout mm-hmm. the film, but yeah. he is not the most important. And he's not the most important in any rendition of the story. Mm-hmm. Because in none of these stories are they ever chasing Hannibal. Well, I say that Hannibal, I believe, yes, he does become like the focus of the investigation. Mm-hmm. But especially in Silence of the Lambs, it's about the detective. Mm-hmm. And I think that's crucial to what makes this movie so fascinating. It has nothing to do with either of the killers. The only level at which Clarice has to dig into the psyche is enough to figure out who they are and catch them. Mm -hmm. The struggle is that she's not consumed by it. And in this movie, she never, ever gets close to that point. Sure. And then you get the backstory with her and Hannibal realizing all of that. And the beautiful thing of, you know, they, they warn her, you know, this can consume you. And instead of it being a bad thing, it's a good thing Mm -hmm. that she has to come to grips with herself Mm -hmm. in order to face down this pure monster. Sure. That's a kind of a beautiful transformational little story to tell. And you ran away? No. First I tried to free them. I, I opened the gate to their pen, but they wouldn't run. They just stood there, confused. They wouldn't run. But you could, and you did, didn't you? Yes. I took one lamb and I ran away as fast as I could. Where were you going, Clary? I don't know. I didn't have any food, any water, and it was very cold. Very cold. I thought... I thought if I could save just one, but... He was so heavy. was so heavy. Yeah, it's not... As common, uh, particularly when it's with a serial killer thing. The writing's spectacular. I think that, though, is what makes it so unique and interesting and makes it stand apart like it did in 1991. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it. there's 
the shock of Lecter, who is fascinating and intriguing and so different. Mm-hmm. But that could be really old hat if you don't also have this really compelling story for Clarice. And on top of that, her being a young, diminutive, just physically, mm-hmm. female FBI agent, which the movie takes really great pains to show without diminishing her capabilities. Mm-hmm. Like they very much frame her as. She is not as big and strong as the guys around her. She is not as well-trained and skilled as the other agents around her. Mm -hmm. She does, however, have full force of will. (laughs) Yeah. And the movie takes a lot of effort to make sure that that is shown in the writing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It's just interesting to be... Because I every time I thought about this movie, I always thought about Lecter. Yeah. Because that's the lasting mar- image, and it's the marketing. It it he sure. sells the movie, but that's not the movie. <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. It's Clarice. But I do, I do think if you take Hannibal out of this movie, it's not as good. Absolutely, no, no, no. Like he he's an incredibly important character mm-hmm. because he is the only type of character who can narrow and focus her enough to realize that the thing she has to overcome isn't you know, any of these issues she has as an agent, it's she has to overcome herself in order mm-hmm. to be able to track these people down. <laughs> because in a weird way, you know, he's he's a psychiatrist. So in his own twisted way, he's kind of helping her. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I think that to me is like what makes it so fascinating because it really is a transformational story wrapped in this really dark package. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you compare and contrast with you know, like I said, Seven was like the seminal serial killer movie for me, mm-hmm. which was much more about diving deeper and deeper into the darkness until you can't escape it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, a, you know, and that's a lot of what we get for serial killer stories when this kind of shows us you don't have to do it that way. And it still stands apart, I think, because of that. Well, Thomas Harris is notably a shy and private man. He declined the opportunity to be directly involved with the film. Like, he's legitimately reclusive. Hmm. He did, however, wish the entire production luck with the adaptation. And while there were many rumors that he never watched the film because he feared it would influence his writing, he actually saw it just after it was released and gave a quote, a great movie. I've been surrounded by it, so I wanted to see it. I admire Jonathan Demme, and we were very fortunate to have him and Ted Talley, and we were very lucky with the cast. Hmm. I love that. But it's also notable here, and and we should mention, that this is not the first Hannibal Lecter adaptation. Mm -hmm. So in 1986, Michael Mann, previously mentioned with Heat, uh, directed the film Manhunter, which is an adaptation of Red Dragon. In that film, William Peterson of CSI, he played the the main character in that, that novel because it's a prequel. And Brian Cox, of succession fame mm-hmm. of recent note, and also just a great actor, plays mm-hmm. Hannibal Lecter. Okay. So it's, it's not his first go through, but it is probably the first major film that mm-hmm. ever came out through it. Tally had already been working on an adaptation of Silence of the Lambs when financing fell through, but Orion had seen the script and were like, we're not sure about this, but your script's really good. Hmm. They knew somehow, some way, no matter how they released it, it was going to be popular. So they urged him to keep working on it and writing it until they could find the backing. So that's a, that, it tells you they knew they had a hit. They just weren't quite sure how they were going to make it a hit, hmm. which is a good position to be in. Yeah. 
The character of Jack Crawford is based on FBI Special Agent John Douglas. He was an early member of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit. Douglas was an active agent during the film's production and at the time in the middle of tracking Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Mm-hmm. Ridgway continued his killings until 1998. They did not finally arrest him until 2001. Mm. But he is one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. Yeah. Douglas was also hired by the family of John Benet Ramsey to investigate her death and potential murder. Mm. Uh, he worked as uh, privately outside of the FBI scope. Uh, he did not fault police for investigating the parents first, saying, you know, that's standard Pretty procedure. Standard, Victims yeah. usually know their killers. But he was actually the first public official to proclaim the parents innocent. Mm. James Gum's kidnapping of Catherine Martin is based on Ted Bundy's tactics for luring victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, it's a very well-known story at this point, especially because we've had so many stories come out about Ted Bundy. But he often faked a broken arm while carrying books and then dropped them, waiting for a bystander to help pick them up. He would then restrain and capture the woman and drive away. Should also mention that some of the other things that he's doing, the flesh suit, all of that, is very reminiscent of Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. Um, like there, there's, it's it's not a subtle reference to other killers that they're dropping here. Yeah, the drawing of the Duomo seen from the Belvedere that we see in Hannibal's cell is a direct foreshadowing for Starling finding gum in Belvedere, Ohio. Hmm. As we talk about this, you're going to notice there are so many little details, mm-hmm. so many little clues and things that they drop throughout the movie. That I didn't catch, which makes me go, okay, maybe I was just missing it. Mm-hmm. The novel uses a different anagram rather than Lewis Friend, the iron sulfide fool's gold anagram. Instead, Lecter gives the nickname William or Billy Rubin for the killer. This would be a reference to Billy Rubin, a pigment found in feces, and also the color of Frederick Chilton's hair. Hmm. Which is a really interesting pointed little comment oh, yeah. from Lecter. Uh, Tally's script included that much more visceral and dark pun, but in revisions, they changed it to Lewis Friend instead. Okay. And of course, the most famous line in the film. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Quoted as the number 21 greatest movie quote by AFI. Mm, I like it. That line is taken almost verbatim from the novel. Mm. The only change is that Lecter says Amarone instead of Chianti in the novel. Amarone was imported and not readily available in the U.S. at that time. So the filmmakers changed it to a wine more people would be familiar with. Mm. The other interesting thing is that this line has a huge subtle second meaning okay liver fava beans and wine all contain tyramine which can be deadly to people using maois the earliest form of antidepressants that were in wider use in 1991 these were primarily used for patients committed to institutions something lector would have had happened to him Mm. i heard that and went holy shit i love that the fact the fact that he was like, I had his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti to specifically go around that point. Mm-hmm. 
there's so many layers that they're putting in there. I love it. It's wild to think about. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about our director and where where I'm I'm trying to figure out how I feel. Okay. Our director is one Jonathan Dem. Mm-hmm. Before this, he directed Caged Heat, Melvin and Howard, Swing Shift, Stop Making Sense, lots of music videos for The Talking Heads, New Order, and UB40, Something Wild, Swimming to Cambodia, Married and Married to the Mob. After this, he directed Philadelphia, Beloved, The Truth About Charlie, The Manchurian Candidate from 2004, Rachel Getting Married, A Master Builder, Ricky and the Flash, and tons and tons of newer documentaries and television. Mm-hmm. What do we think of Jonathan Dem's directing of this movie? I think it's very good. And I think it's very, with Clarice, there is such care to not make her look weak, but also not romantic, mm-hmm. which I think is would have been so easy to do. They, they shoot her, uh, like, uh, this is going to sound weird, but it's like, they shoot, they shoot her like she's a dude. <laughs> and there's just like there's not like this fanciful pretty lighting on her and i i think that had to have been a decision of like we have to treat her the way we would a, a gentleman in the situation because we don't want to cheapen her experience and we don't want to belittle her intelligence on like what got her here when characters talk to clarice they often talk directly to the camera clarice always looks slightly off camera Dem states that this was intentional to allow the audience to always see the movie from Clarice's point of view and not from the other characters, mm-hmm. always drawing the viewer back to her and identifying with her. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's as a dude in the sense of it's always going to be through her eyes. Sure. Yeah. It's always through her gaze. Mm-hmm. This is where I go, you know what it is? He did such subtle little things. Mm-hmm. That I didn't catch it. Mm. And so I was sitting, the whole time I'm sitting there, I was like, this feels kind of meh. I don't, and and then I read all this trivia and we're going to go through a lot of it. Mm. There are little choices that he very clearly made. Mm-hmm. And it's, and you see the sheer just giant amount of it and you go, my God, he did such great work with this. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that it's not, it's not an obvious level of work it's one of those very different subtle forms and part of it too is that from dem i'm used to seeing something like philadelphia where it wears its heart on its sleeve mm-hmm. i'm used to him being a whole lot more emotional director mm-hmm. we talk about rachel getting married which is like one of the early proto versions of this podcast we did like a an episode for ourselves about like many years ago mm-hmm and this is not a movie that does that. So I'm there like, no. how did you pull all of this subtlety that's not what you typically do with your movies? But he just got it. I get why critics were so pulled to it because, again, it's mind-blowing. You don't ever, you don't have a female protagonist mm-hmm. that you literally center the entire movie through. I think that's where it is. It's that he, maybe it's, a gimmick in and of itself but it's specifically to serve that story yeah the way you're talking this makes me think about this one very specific story of rachel getting married and they had live music the entire time they filmed that 
And there was a moment in the film where uh, the Anne Hathaway character actually yells at the musicians. And that came directly from Deb because she's like, hey, I think they're just too loud in the scene. And his response was like, you have a problem with it. Go do something about it. Mm-hmm. So that's what she did in the scene. And it was like, OK, so that that is like a gimmicky thing. But that speaks so much to him, like focusing on like, what are we supposed to be paying attention to? Like, what's the important thing? Yes, there are all these subtle things and layers, but what's important? And he's focused and Clarice is what's important. Making her the center of everything is what's important. That's what he did. Yeah. Where this movie threw me for a lot of it on this first viewing is that I thought this was a movie that was mostly about Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. And it's not at all. Hannibal Lecter is an incredible character. He's Mm -hmm. incredibly written. He's fascinating, but he's not the story. No. And to be honest, knowing what I know about Red Dragon, he's not the story in that either. Mm -hmm. He is this wonderful side character and foil. He's this like beautiful Salieri character Mm -hmm. who is an incredible character, but not the point of the story. No. And so it's it's funny because I'm going to have to go watch this again. Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to have to watch it being like, okay, it's Clarissa's story. And now I can watch it through her eyes and go, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Because it just, they, nothing prepares you for that if you've never seen it. Yeah. And yet you've also been culturally soaked in it. Because, you know, at the time, nobody knew anything about it. But now it's permeated the culture so much. And it's been readapted so many times. Sure. That you're like, oh, it's all about Lecter. And it's like, no, that's not what makes this movie amazing. And it's not what Dem did at all. Mm-hmm. And he's smart enough to figure that out. Yeah, when you, when you start to see it in those light and you start to see all of the care and attention and thought he put into the little things, you, it builds this bigger picture to where, like you said with Rachel getting married, it's all about setting an environment. Mm-hmm. He sets a place in all of these different ways. Between the FBI headquarters and James Gum's torture dungeon mm-hmm. and that weird cell for Lecter, mm-hmm. all of his weird cells, let's be honest. Yeah. He sets an environment. Mm-hmm. And then he lets these amazing actors work in there. That's all they have to do. Yeah. And, and his job is let me make all of the stage perfect for you. So that when it's time for you to perform, we get that moment. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing. Almost every scene of Lecter's Baltimore cell has a reflection of Hannibal or Clarice, depending on where the camera is looking. Mm-hmm. He did get the cooperation of the behavioral science unit of the FBI to make the film. However, it wasn't the story that intrigued the FBI. It was the fact that they were, could recruit female agents. That makes sense. Yeah, well, you know, every... Every FBI movie is going to be a, a recruitment tool for them. Sure. And I don't so much have a problem with that. But like, I like that they're like, oh, this like, let's help them because like, we definitely need more women in our in our group. Like, mm. I don't have a problem with that. Dem actually decided early on to film on site at Quantico. The doors had always been closed up until that point. But obviously, this mm-hmm. opportunity let them get their foot in the door. Production designer Christy Z was struck by how boring and prosaic the building was i mean you it's a government building you Mm -hmm. had to know it would be but she was concerned that it was like it's not going to look like anything on camera and dem said i want it to look as mundane and boring as possible Mm. setting a table 
Originally, Dem wanted to open the film with the drug bust scene that we've seen, where Clarice and an FBI cohort are in the middle of it, only to see its training exercise. Jodie Foster actually convinced Dem that it needed to be changed because it was such a common trope. Mm -hmm. So instead, they changed it to where Starling is running through the assault course, and then took that scene and put it in the middle right after Clarice first visits Hannibal Lecter. So she's rattled. Okay, I like that. Jodie Foster has lots of good ideas. Yeah. The music box theme that we hear in Ohio is Das Klinget so herrlich from The Magic Flute. In The Magic Flute, Monstatos desires Pamina, and he and his slaves capture her and Papageno. Papageno plays the tune on magic bells, enchanting Monstatos and his slaves. They forget their tack and begin to exit the stage paralleling Clarice's next stop at Jane Gum's house. Mm -hmm. While Clarice is waiting for Jack Crawford, she looks at the blackboard with notes on Buffalo Bill. There are two short quotes from the E.E. E. Cummings poem, Buffalo Bills slash defunct, quote, one, two, three, four, five, and near the bottom of the board, quote, how do you like blue-eyed boy now? This is a quote from the final line of that poem, quote, how do you like your blue-eyed boy, Mr. Death? unquote hmm. so many little fucking things <laughs> and the production design on this movie is immaculate too like that's a big part of it mm -hmm. but this is all coming from our director who is trying to make these little things hit so that the audience goes whoa mm -hmm. that you feel like you're in it during clarice's first meeting with chilton he provides the anecdote of lecter brutalizing a nurse stating his pulse never got above 85 in the ambulance, before Lecter wakes up with the skin mask, the paramedic mentions that the patient has a pulse of 84, showing that Lecter is icy calm despite mm. the horror he's about to inflict. Mm. I mean, come on. That's cool. And finally, when Clarice finds Catherine Martin in the well, she is in a gown, afraid, and holding a white poodle, much like Clarice when she was in a gown, afraid, and holding a lamb. Mm -hmm. And of course, Catherine, like Clarice, could not let go of the poodle after being rescued. Mm -hmm. Damn, man. Yeah. When I started to read those, I was like, I missed something big here. Mm. And then reflecting on it, you start to go, oh, okay. <laughs> mm. It's it's outstanding directing. It's just it it didn't hit me, I think, the first time. And I think if you're not paying attention to that and you think you're watching a serial killer movie, then, yeah, you feel a little disappointed because you're like, oh, this is what am I here for? But this isn't a serial killer movie. Mm -hmm. This is a movie about somebody who has to deal with the stress and the struggle and the mental like fortitude it takes to go investigate these things. It's a movie about the agency and about the, the person who is required to face these things. And once you see it through that lens, you start to go, oh, all of this makes so much more sense. <laughs> now we have some who could have been betters. Mm. A gentleman by the name of Gene Hackman bought the rights to the novel and planned to direct it. He was either going to play Hannibal Lecter or Jack Crawford. He should have played Jack Crawford if he mm -hmm. picked anybody. I mean, I love Gene Hackman, but... Yeah. However... At the 1989 Academy Awards, after watching a clip of himself in 1988's Mississippi Burning, he had a profound uneasiness about ultraviolent roles after that point. So he decided he was done. He wasn't going to do it. Okay. Also, who could have been better? 
Paul Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. RoboCop. No. Uh, the maestro of overblown satire didn't think there was an audience for this kind of project. He wound up regretting that decision. Mm-hmm. But he would have been wrong for this movie. Who? Yeah. And finally, who could have been better? John Carpenter. Mm, no. He has stated he was disappointed in the film's focus on Clarice and said he would have made it, quote, much more frightening and gripping, unquote. Now. Do I think John Carpenter is right for the movie as is? Clearly, no. Clarice is the focus. Do I think John Carpenter would do an amazing psychological serial killer movie? Oh my god, yes. I mean, Halloween kind of is that, let's be real. But like a a truly just deep in one guy darkness Mm -hmm. movie from John Carpenter? Gimme. I would love it. All right. Let's talk about then... If the table is set, what makes the movie truly come to life? Mm-hmm. And that is our cast. Oh, yes. Holy shit, our cast. Mm-hmm. We start with Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. Hell yeah, we do. Before this, she was on many episodes of the magical world of Disney. Mm-hmm. Lots of television. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, Bugsy Malone, Freaky Friday from 1976, Fox's Carney, The Hotel New Hampshire, Stealing Home, and The Accused. After this, she was in Little Man Tate, Shadows and Fog, Maverick, Nell, Contact, Anna and the King, The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys, Panic Room, A Very Long Engagement, Flight Plan, Inside Man, a ton of smaller roles, and she is also producing and directing a lot. And coming soon, she will be in Nyad, a film about the 64-year-old British swimmer as a supporting character. And True Detective Season 4. I'm so fucking stoked for True Detective Season 4. Barry fucking Jenkins. I mean, yes. And Female Detectives in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Gimme. What do we think of Jodie Foster in this movie? She's fabulous. I thought I was going to come out of this movie again because I was expecting Lecter. And I was like, okay, well, I'm about to watch uh, an Anthony Hopkins masterclass. No, you get a Jodie Foster masterclass. Mm-hmm. Wow, she's so good. Like, she is so uniquely empathetic. And I mean that in the real term of empathetic. Sure. Because it's, it's not the sympathy thing where you're like, oh, well, you know, yeah, she's, she's struggling and she's female. It's like, no, you feel through her acting what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. Like, in some of those deepest of ways, when she finally has to confront that that moment and, and talking about her past in in Tennessee with Lecter behind that cage, mm-hmm. and you just see it all over her face, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Holy shit!" Like all of it, you just you're in the moment with her the whole time. And then the the absolute amazing directing decision to put everything in night vision for the climax, mm-hmm. but also for Jody's acting to be so on point in that moment. Yeah. Because you have to be convincing in the dark. I have done a play that was quote unquote in the dark. Mm-hmm. And that is hard shit to pull off. Yeah. To, to be convincing in the sense that you cannot see what you are doing. That is really hard to do. <laughs> you have to, as an actor, let go a lot because you can't keep your eyes closed. You But you still you're likely having a degree of light around you for safety reasons, but you have to act like you have no idea what's in front of your face. 
You really do. That is not an easy thing to do. And then there's also all these other elements about the dark that people just don't think about unless we're doing a horror film, like a straight up horror film. In this particular environment, everything you think you've seen has now turned into something else because you can't see anymore. And that unknowable element, particularly the fact that our camera in those scenes is a guy with night vision on who's there to hurt you, Mm -hmm. um, is terrifying. It's fabulous. She's amazing. I love her always. She was 26 turning 27 when they made the movie in late 1989 and early 1990. Mm -hmm. That's fucking incredible. Like, we talked about her in Taxi Driver. She was incredible at, like, 14, okay? Mm-hmm. But, my God, to to carry a movie the way she does in this movie mm-hmm. and to have a consistency of character throughout the filming, I don't think they filmed this in sequence. They were all over the place. They were filming in locations. I'm sure they had to rearrange shit. Sure. The whole performance is consistent from beginning to end mm-hmm. in how she arcs and how she changes and how the... The whole thing takes place. And credit to the editors and our director for seeing how to make craft that, of course. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she she just nails it. Oh yeah, it's mind blowing. She's she truly is like the best thing in the movie, and that is saying something because there's great uh, there's other great performances. Mm-hmm. She actually tried to buy the rights to the novel after she read it, only to find that Gene Hackman had already optioned it. Oh, that's funny. She lobbied for the role very heavily, and screenwriter Ted Talley is the one who suggested her. Okay. Dem did not have Jodie Foster as his first choice. Mm-hmm. He wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay. Who's a great actress, and I'm sure she would have done an okay job, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would buy Michelle Pfeiffer as much as I buy Jodie Foster. So they don't, they're not totally dissimilar. They really aren't. But Michelle Pfeiffer has typically played the sexy version of whatever Jodie Foster's doing. Jodie does not typically play a sexy character. Michelle Pfeiffer is as good an actress, but she's a movie star. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. I think she plays a different type of movie star. Jodie Foster is also a movie star. It's just See, very... I, think, I feel like Jodie Foster is actress first. No. Okay. I don't, I don't, know. I don't think that's true because she's also been an actor since she was a child that too she also doesn't live her life in hollywood no not at all as just a person it's it's just a very different vibe michelle pfeiffer could have done this and done very well i don't think she would have gotten the consideration that jody would have in part because i can guarantee you they would have leaned into the sexy fbi agent bit Mm. and jody And it's not that she's not a beautiful woman, but she's a woman who is very comfortable being a little more plain. She doesn't need to be made up. And I think that really serves this character so well and helps the audience feel at ease with her being in this scenario. Yeah. Pfeiffer actually turned it down. She was offered. Orion wouldn't put up her $2 million fee for the movie. Mm. And so they were like, okay. Then Dem met Foster, and the second he saw her walk up to meet him, mm-hmm. she had such confidence in the walk. With pure determination, he said, that's Clarice. Mm. He didn't even have to screen test her, nothing. He was like, Mm-mm, that's it. That's exactly what we need. 
Part of her deal with this was her getting the rights to direct a film for Orion. So she had her feature film directing debut with Little Man Tate. Mm. Um, and that's where she got started on that, that road. She worked closely with FBI agent Mary Ann Krauss before filming. And Krauss gave Foster the idea to go to her car after meeting Lecter and cry. She noted that the work sometimes would be so overwhelming that Krauss often needed an emotional release. Hmm. And I think that's a key moment. Because, mm-hmm. like, she can't just be a robot. People will, like, not buy that. If you want to make it all from her perspective and really dig into what she has to deal with, mm-hmm. you have to also show her, like, having a moment that it's like, this is too fucking much. Okay. Dem claimed there were over 300 different applicants for the role. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was also offered to Meg Ryan at one point, who turned it down over the subject matter. Okay. And both Brooke Smith, who is Catherine Martin in the film, and Nicole Kidman read for the role. Okay. But we got Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. And she's so fucking good. She is the best. Now, let us talk about another fucking legend. And that is Sir Anthony Hopkins as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mm. He of the incredible turn in Mission Impossible 2, a film that does not exist and that we have not watched. Right. In which he says, in the only time in the Mission Impossible franchise, that this mission is impossible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just hate number two with a fiery passion of a thousand suns, and therefore we refuse to admit that it exists. However... It's an iconic performance. Oh, this one? Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason Anthony Hopkins is held in such high regard and for this movie. Because holy shit. He's so unnerving. Mm -hmm. And Anthony Hopkins as a human is like a teddy bear. So this is creepy AF. Like just the way he looks at you. And then that noise is just it's gross in the best way. When I give you the trivia of how he built the character, because he is a teddy bear. He's a hugely wonderful yeah. actor who does who everybody loves to work with. But he he did a ton of work. Mm-hmm. He put in the work. And and it shows. It just shows in how he embodies the character. You're right. The movie doesn't work without Lecter. None of these stories work without Lecter. Because Lecter is this perfect foil to expose the psychology of everyone else right Mm -hmm. like you have to have Lecter because what makes harris's stories intriguing is not the whodunit mystery it's the deeper psychology of why they're doing it that's what his stories focus on and so Lecter's key to unlocking all of that Mm -hmm. but you've got to have someone who can somehow embody pure evil because everything about Lecter is just evil. Mm-hmm. Except that he was cast based on his performances for Dr. Frederick Treves in The Elephant Man from 1980. Mm-hmm. And he questioned Dem's casting of him. He said, well, Dr. Treves was a good man. And Dem replied, quote, so is Lecter. He is a good man, too. Just trapped in an insane mind, unquote. Mm-hmm. Which I think unlocks... Hannibal in so many ways. Oh, sure. Especially for this movie. I I haven't seen the other adaptations, so I think they took different tacks. Mm -hmm. Like, by all accounts, the TV show is really cool. Lots of people love it. Mm -hmm. And many people say Manhunter's a great movie. Mm -hmm. Just a different different take and a different style. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to have the key to this one, 
if the whole thing is Clarice having to unlock these emotions to be able to face down the darkness, you've got to have somebody who can best everyone in wits. Mm -hmm. And that's what he does. He brings all of that. And I think he brings that idea of, sure, he's not a good man. He's horrible. But he doesn't think he's horrible. Mm -hmm. In fact, he thinks he's downright nice to the people he's doing this to. Mm -hmm. And that's the key to what Hopkins is doing. Because he's cold, ruthless. But in a weird way, he thinks he's doing the world good. Mm -hmm. And so he's utterly convincing in any of his actions. He's willing to do whatever because he he just hates impropriety. Yep. (laughs) I detest. Uh, He's just fascinating. He's so fascinating to watch. He took the role believing it was his final opportunity to break out in Hollywood. Mm. Um, He'd been he'd done film and television since the 1960s but had really, other than The Elephant Man, had never appeared in much more of a role than a character actor. He said, had the film not been a success, he would have completely walked away from Hollywood and returned to the stage instead. Mm. Instead, it made him a household name, immediately launched him to movie stardom, and over the course of his career, six Academy Award nominations, Mm. which is wild to think about. Mm -hmm. It's like this man, who is an incredibly good actor, would have just dropped it if it weren't for this movie. Yep. This made him a star. Yep. It made him a household name. You're like, really? That guy? But no. Like, he was he was much more of a stage actor up until mm-hmm. this point. Yep. But again, Hopkins did the work. He studied serial killer files. He visited prisons studying convicted murderers. And he even went so far as to attend court hearings around gruesome murders and serial killings to prepare. Um, His characterization came from more varied places and kind of fun. Um, He had a friend who rarely blinked while speaking, which made Mm. everyone around the friend unnerved. And so he decided he was just going to use that guy's thing because everybody around him was like, this guy's really creepy. But he noticed that Lecter had similar characteristics to reptiles. Reptiles only blink when they want to and do so consciously. So Hopkins chose to do that as part of his preparation. He saw Lecter as similar to HAL 9000, a highly complex, highly intelligent, highly logical killing machine knowing everything around him. Mm. It was Hopkins' idea to look directly at the camera as it panned into sight of him in the first scene, as it would portray Lecter as knowing everything. And Jodie Foster claims that during the first meeting between Hannibal and Clarice, Hopkins improvised the mocking of Clarice's southern accent. Foster was genuinely mortified, feeling personally attacked. Mm. She later, after they were done, thanked Hopkins for eliciting the reaction because it was so genuine. She did, however, avoid him during scenes while they weren't filming because she was so terrified of him in character. Mm. He he nailed it. He just nailed it. (laughs) All right. There are a lot of who could have been betters for Hannibal Lecter. Mm. Dem's first choice was Sean Connery. Big fat no. I don't know. That could... If Sean Connery put everything into it, it would be fun. Mm. He turned it down. Another gentleman who turned it down was Jeremy Irons. He could have done it. He could have. However, he had just played Klaus von Bülow in Reversal of Fortune, and he did not want to play another killer. Mm. In an interview with Empire Magazine... 
John Lithgow named Lecter as one of the greatest villains of all time, adding, quote, even though I was next in line for the role, unquote. <laughs> Lithgow could have done it. Yes, Lithgow. I mean, we've we've seen him in Dexter. He could have done this. Oh, absolutely. It was there. He could have given a very similar performance to Hopkins and and be absolutely convincing. Mm-hmm. And now a laundry list. Sir John Hurt. Eh. Christopher Lloyd. Maybe. Dustin Hoffman. No. He can't get away. I know. Sir Patrick Stewart. Yes. Louis Gossett Jr. I want to see a screen test. Yeah. Robert Duvall. Yeah, no. Here's the thing. Lecter in the original books is from Baltimore. Okay. So if you were going to go with that, I would take Robert Duvall. He could pull that iciness. Jack Nicholson. No. Robert De Niro. Yes. Always. Bobby can fucking do anything. <laughs> he really can. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford. Now, he has only been an Arpon on this show, despite appearing twice. Okay. But he's getting a huge role for this film. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was in a lot of random stuff. Then Nashville and Apocalypse Now, where we've talked about him before. Okay. More American Graffiti, Urban Cowboy, The Right Stuff. Oh, I forget. He was Alan Shepard in The Right Stuff. Yeah, he wasn't just an Arpon in that one. The Keep, Silverado, Man on Fire, the original film, and The Hunt for Red October. After this, he was in Backdraft, The Player, Courage Under Fire, Absolute Power, The Virgin Suicides, Vertical Limit, Training Day, Buffalo Soldiers, The Shipping News, The Bourne Ultimatum, Knights in Rodanthe, W, Secretariat, Sucker Punch, The Bourne Legacy, Daredevil on TV, The Leftovers on TV, The Defenders on TV, and Castle Rock on TV. What do we think of Scott Glenn in this movie? I mean, he's a company man, essentially. This is an interesting turn for him as an actor, I think. Mm-hmm. Between the spectacles and the very clean shavenness of him. Okay. Because, like, even Alan Shepard in The Right Stuff, yeah, he's a military guy, but he's the, like, kind of goofy, off the wall military guy. He's the hotshot Navy guy who doesn't want to follow the rules. Mm. And then, you know, you think Scott Glenn and you think, like, craggy, seen everything, dude. And in this, he's so just like clean shaven and like Mr. FBI agent. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of subtlety that he's bringing that he's kind of pegged into a character role more often. Okay. So I, it's, it's a good turn. And he's a great choice for the character who's got to be like the head guy. Hmm. He's not doing a lot special, though. Let's be honest. But it's not like he has that much to do. Well, Glenn worked directly with FBI agent John Douglas to prepare for the role. Okay. Upon finishing working with him, he thanked John Douglas, saying it was fascinating to be allowed into his world. Douglas laughed at him and said that if Glenn wanted to be involved in his world, he needed to hear a recording of serial killers Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris made of their crimes against two victims. Hmm. Glenn listened to less than a minute of the tape and since said he cannot forget what he has heard and feels he lost a sense of his own innocence in doing so. Hmm. That audio is used at Quantico to desensitize new recruits and agents to study and track serial killers. Hmm. It is incredibly graphic. It's extremely disturbing. I have seen portions of just the transcript. You don't want to seek it out. Hmm. It's that gruesome. 
But the FBI specifically takes that to say, this is what you need to be prepared to face. (laughs) Yeah, you need to be able to handle this. Which is just like, God almighty. Mm -hmm. But, But for an actor to go, I regret ever even sitting down for a minute of this. And you're like, God almighty, that's what these guys have to do? Yeah. Yeah. It just it gives you a level of the gravity, which again he brings a ton of that gravity. Mm-hmm. Who could have been better? Ed Harris. Hmm. Obviously, same kind of actor, same great stuff. But he didn't like the role. He thought it was too boring, and he wanted to play Lecter. Oh, okay. Which I wouldn't hate Ed Harris as a Hannibal Lecter, especially yeah. if you're going that American route. Sure. Also, who could have been better for Crawford? Michael Keaton. Okay. Yeah. Mickey Rourke. Eighty-nine. Mickey Rourke. Maybe. Maybe still a little too pretty. Mm. This is before all the other stuff. Yeah. And Kenneth Branagh. Mm, Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Mm. All right. Finally, we have to talk about him. Ted Levine as James Gum. Mm-hmm. Before this, he was in Ironweed, Crime Story on TV, and Next of Kin. After this, Nowhere to Run, Heat. He's one of the detectives in that. Flubber, Wild Wild West, Evolution, The Fast and the Furious, Ali, Wonderland, The Manchurian Candidate, Birth, Memoirs of a Geisha, The Hills Have Eyes, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, American Gangster, Monk on TV, Shutter Island, Luck on TV, The Bridge on TV, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, The Report, The Alienist on TV, and On Becoming a God in Central Florida on TV. Mm. What do we think of Ted Levine in this movie? I mean, he's great. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> he's awful. He is one of the most compelling serial killer villains precisely mm-hmm. because he takes it to that deep level of preparation and thought. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because we talked about one of the funniest stories out of Heat was Ted Levine like has this sort of drunken monologue that he tells the story while they're at a, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And Michael Mann was like, where did you where did you get that story? He's like, I don't know. I just fucking made it up. Mm-hmm. He's just the kind of actor who just goes with it. Mm-hmm. And holy shit, does he go with it in this movie? Yeah. As memorable as Lecter is, the lasting legacy of this movie is the shit that James Gumma does. Yeah. Every time people quote or talk about this movie in those hushed tones, they talk about stuff from his basement. Okay. Like, what's the line we always quote? It's not the fava beans line, partly because I had a hard time spitting it out. The line we always quote is, put the lotion lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Hose again, yeah. (laughs) Or put the lotion in the basket. See, my mom is a real important woman. I I guess you already know that. Now it places the lotion in the basket. (laughs) Please. Please. Oh, I go home, please. Places the lotion in the basket. I want to see my mommy. Please, no. I want to see my mommy. Okay. I want to see my mommy. Put the fucking lotion in the basket! With a deep voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that... That fucking voice that he comes up with for it. And that's oh, partly his natural voice. Mm-hmm. But then, like, and then the split of his mind where he's like, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Mm-hmm. And you think, like, it's going to be a parody, but it's so not. Mm-hmm. 
because again, it is so wild that in your memory, you just almost have to laugh at it. Because if you let yourself believe that somebody really believed that, you'd be like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. He's so deep into it. Yeah. And it's amazing. Like it, it's it's incredible the work he does for this movie. He, I was like, I feel like I know what to expect, and I wasn't ready for how mm -hmm. deep into the character he went. And he's the really like sudden breakout. Whoa, you're you're on another level mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of actor. At his audition, Brooke Smith, who wound up getting the role of Catherine Martin, was so impressed that she asked what he did to get the performance down. Mm -hmm. Levine, the master of weird motivations, said. He had no idea what he was going to do, so he just drank a crap ton of coffee and went in completely jittery. I like it. The man just goes on pure instinct. Hey, it worked. Now, to be fair, he did develop the character. He read serial killer profiles as well. He said he found it incredibly disturbing, some of the mm -hmm. stuff he delved into. But he also went to some trans bars and interviewed patrons to get a sense of their feelings. Now, I will say... This is not the most sensitive description of trans people in the universe. No, not at all. Like, And it has been widely criticized, I think, probably for good reason. <laughs> it, it's not good. It's, it's not. There are efforts made, I appreciate in the novel, and, and Lecter points it out, mm -hmm. is that part of the reason why he delves deeper into madness is that he's rejected. Mm -hmm. He is looking to make a change. Mm-hmm. And yet he is continually rejected. And then that just spurs him into a much deeper, darker universe. Mm -hmm. And they and they take some pains like it's 1991. So they're not doing the best job, but they do take some pains to try to say he has gone beyond that into a much deeper darkness. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not like they, I don't know, don't try to make an effort for it. But still, it. At the time, it was widely criticized for its portrayal of trans people. Oh, and sure. it's 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 rough. But I appreciate that he was wanting to dive in to really make the role work. Mm -hmm. The screenplay did not include Gum's dance, but oh. it was a key feature of the novel. Levine demanded they include it in the film. He said it's completely essential to the character. I agree, and he's absolutely right. It is one of those wild things because. Every time I've heard his character mentioned, mm -hmm. it's always been number one in the hushed, oh my God, he's so creepy. And number two, as a joke. Mm -hmm. And then you see it and you go, oh, it's a joke because people are so uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if there's a breakout star from this movie, it was him. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do some Arpons. Arpon, random people of note. Casey Lemons playing Ardelia Mapp, who is Clarice's classmate mm -hmm. she appeared in Candyman and has gone on to direct including 2019's harriet and the upcoming i want to dance with somebody oh, okay anthony held playing dr frederick chilton he was the bad guy lawyer in the pelican brief mm. frankie Faison playing barney he's a great character actor he was the landlord in coming to america oh, okay don brockett as the friendly psychopath that we meet at the beginning he was Chef Brockett and Mr. Bulldog on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, okay. Chuck Aber playing Agent Terry, one of the FBI agents. This is Neighbor Aber from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. This is so weird. I have to imagine this was a bit mm -hmm. by Dem 
and, and maybe they were like filming in Pittsburgh. I didn't look that up. So if they were, mm-hmm. that would make a lot of sense. But like for him to go, I'm going to make a really fucked up twisted movie. And then I'm going to throw a couple actors from your childhood in there just to fuck with you a little more. I mean, it's the kind of thing he would do. That's messed up, but I love it. <laughs> Brooke Smith playing Catherine Martin. She was Dr. Erica Hahn on Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. Tracy Walter playing Lamar. This was Cookie from City Slickers. Hmm. Kenneth Utt playing Dr. Aiken. He was a producer and unit production manager who worked a lot with Dem. Darla as Precious, the dog. Uh, She was in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, The Burbs, and Batman Returns. She had a very nice career. Adela Lutz as the TV anchorwoman. She was the ex-wife of David Byrne, uh, married at the time, and a costume designer who worked on some of Byrne's most iconic looks. And of course, being uh, connected with the Talking Heads, that was a huge artistic connection with Jonathan Dem. Mm. Diane Baker playing Senator Ruth Martin. This was Stephen's mom in The Cable Guy. Oh, okay. Roger Corman playing FBI director Hayden Burke, the legendary writer-producer-director of B-movies, who also happened to launch the careers of many directors, including Jonathan Dem. Mm. Chris Isaac playing the SWAT commander, he the of Wicked Game fame. Oh, okay. Daniel Von Bargen playing a SWAT communicator. He was the head of the military school on Malcolm in the Middle. Gary Getzman playing Guido Paunessa. He was a producer. Hmm. As an FBI agent in Memphis, George A. Romero, creator of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, wow. He is one of the agents forcibly removing Clarice after the final meeting with Hannibal. Hmm. Edward Saxon as Benjamin Raspail, the head in the jar. He is an also, also producer. Hmm. Several of the producers are in the film. Wow. Okay. That's cool. As the voice that yells, Cindy, in the ring for Starling, David Lynch. Of course. Off screen. Lynch and Dem were very good friends. They were kind of contemporaries. And Lynch and Mark Frost were filming Twin Peaks, a county over from Quantico, and they dropped by to visit the set. Okay. And finally, as a SWAT team member with the mustache in the final raid, Ted Talley, our writer. Mm. Keeping costs low by casting everybody. Yep. All right. This film was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Mm. And as with all of our Oscar series, we will not be revealing who won what. We will only be talking about the nominations because, of course, we are going to watch the 1992 Academy Awards. I mean, we know, but you may not know, so we don't know. Just, just, we'll pretend like we don't. It was nominated for Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Mm -hmm. Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director for Jonathan Demme, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, and Best Picture. So, yeah. All right, on to trivia. Trivia. And boy, is there a lot. Oh, wow. Okay. Originally, Lecter was supposed to be dressed in a yellow or orange jumpsuit when being transferred from Baltimore. Hmm. Hopkins convinced Dem and costume designer Colleen Atwood to dress him in pure white because Hmm. it would be creepier. Apparently, he got his idea from having a fear of dentists. Respect. (laughs) During location scouting for James Gum's house, Ted Levine discovered that the house they were considering 
was next door to the home of his high school girlfriend in the town where he grew up. Um, that's a bit too close for comfort. Upon first hearing his agent was sending a script named The Silence of the Lambs, Sir Anthony Hopkins thought he might be up for a kid's movie. Right. Okay. Hopkins' infamous slurping was improvised, and everyone loved it, except for Dem, who appreciated it for the movie but became quite annoyed with it after a while. Mm -hmm. The building used for the exterior of Lecter's asylum was shut down and demolished less than 10 years after the film's release. They used footage from Silence of the Lambs for establishing shots in Red Dragon because they no longer had the sets available. And of course, Red Dragon is a prequel, so he's still in the cell. Yeah. The pattern on the back of the Death's Head Hawk Moth on the poster is not its natural pattern. Mm. It's actually Salvador Dali's Involuptus Mors, an image of seven nude women made to look like a skull. Mm -hmm. The moth cocoon found in the victim's throat was made from Tootsie Rolls and gummy bears, just in case they swallowed it while filming. Mm. Which, gross, but also practical. Yeah. The idea to use glass instead of bars for Lecter's Baltimore cell came from production designer Christy Z. Dem felt the bars would negate the intimacy between Lecter and Starling, so she created the clear cell. Mm. In the novel, Lecter is behind bars with a nylon net behind that he cannot get through. Mm. There are moments in James Gum's house where you can see Nazi swastikas stitched in his sheets and hidden on the wall. This was just one level that the production design added, trying to layer more and more darker ideas and images and tones to show his deteriorating state of mind. Hmm. The office of the FBI director was played in this movie by Secretary of Labor Elizabeth Dole's office. Hmm. The FBI was incredibly impressed with the film's accuracy in depicting investigations of serial killers and victims. They praise the realism specifically of the moment of Catherine begging to see her mother, something that is frequent with victims. However, they disagreed with Clarice's discovering of Buffalo Bill. They said that inexperienced agents would never be sent out alone on a dangerous assignment. Mm -hmm. Dem convinced them to relent on it because it was too crucial for the film. And they said it would be the most improbable course of action. It would never be repeated again. Hmm. Hold on to that thought for later in our trivia. Okay. Anthony Hopkins' performance was so powerful, it changed the way Hannibal Lecter was portrayed in Harris's novels. Hmm. So again, Lecter is intended to be from Baltimore. Brian Cox portrayed him as American in Manhunter. However, Hopkins' portrayal and accent completely took over the image of the character. Hmm. So in Hannibal and Hannibal Rising, the author then explained that Lecter was Lithuanian, moving to France before coming to America in early adulthood which explained his unusual accent and effect. Hmm. That like that makes me kind of happy. Like it was so impactful. Like I couldn't not. It's kind of like the whole um Sean Connery making Bond Scottish. Yeah. Like at a certain point like Fleming had to do it. It's just so funny to me too because it was like yeah, and they'd already done it before with a with a British actor yeah. playing American. <laughs> but Anthony Hopkins was too good. Mhm. The horror movie magazine Fangoria approached the filmmakers to cover the movie, but Orion Pictures felt the horror focus of the publication would stigmatize its Oscar chances, Mm. which at the time they felt like, we've got a shot. Yeah. 
so they declined. The filmmakers of Cape Fear also declined Fangoria's coverage for similar reasons. Mm-hmm. Other than the pickled head in the limousine, no dummies were used for dead victims. They used actual actors in realistic makeup, often undressed and in the open on set. Hmm. I mean, it seems like grotesque, maybe a step more than necessary. But on the other hand, he's setting the table. Yeah. It's it's one of those choices that just really opens that environment. Mm-hmm. During Clarice's confession about trying to save the lamb, there's a very small sound in the distance after she says the line, I thought if I could just save one. A crewman dropped a wrench while filming, and it is caught slightly, very slightly on the microphone. Dem panicked, thinking that the shot was ruined because it was a perfect take from Foster. Mm -hmm. She, however, completely remained in character and fully in the moment and was able to convince Dem to keep the footage. Hmm. The second cut got called, Foster turned around to the crew and yelled, what the hell was that? (laughs) The crew were completely prepared to go to Montana and film a flashback sequence depicting the runaway attempt Hmm. by Clarice. As soon as they filmed the scene, Dem realized it would be utterly pointless to cut away from her and Hopkins' performances. And Mm. he said, quote, I guess we aren't going to Montana. I like it. (laughs) There was an alternate ending scripted for the film. Lecter would be sporting a beard, glasses, lighter hair, and cosmetic surgery, and he would call on the phone. He would say to Clarice that she looked lovely in her blue suit, letting her know that he has seen her, before it is revealed that he has tied and gagged Chilton in his home, with a dead security guard lying next to him. Lecter holds a knife and says, well, Dr. Chilton, shall we begin? Right before the screen fades. Dem deemed the ending to, quote, icky, and changed it to Lecter slowly following Chilton through the Bahamas, which is a better ending. Oh, yeah. It's so much better. So much more menacing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because you don't know what he's going to do. Now, if you'll recall the FBI complaining about, you know, Clarice being sent out on her own. There is a large chunk of the film that was completely taken out for the final cut, but is available in deleted scenes, and it explains why Clarice is on her own. Mm. Based on Lecter's tip, Crawford visits Johns Hopkins to see if Buffalo Bill was rejected for gender reassignment surgery. Mm. The hospital argues with him that they won't provide the data, but eventually he convinces them because it's the FBI. The deal that they try to make in Tennessee falls through, obviously. And the two actually have a conversation about the fallout of their fake deal. Hmm. Crawford wants Clarice to go back to Quantico, but she actually then goes to Tennessee when we then see her confront Lecter doing that whole thing. And she checks Catherine Martin's apartment. Hmm. At the apartment, Senator Martin and Krenler, the agent in charge from the FBI, confront her. and She is then ordered back to Quantico. This explains Hannibal's line, quote, one last weedle before you're booted off the case. Hmm. After Lecter's escape, Clarice and Crawford suggest that Buffalo Bill may have known his first victim, but the director won't listen to them. He only wants to place blame. And Clarice is suspended while Crawford has to transfer and take leave. This means that when Clarice goes to Ohio, she is not an FBI agent. She is a civilian. Hmm. And so Crawford... She begs Crawford to let her go. He relents and says, okay. He knows the potential repercussions. Mm-hmm. But finally, on the phone call back to her, 
he explains that he's been reinstated because of Lecter's tip panning out. Yeah. Now, again, this is perfectly cut. Like, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But it does explain why she's willing to go on her own. And, you know, the FBI wouldn't have sanctioned that. Yeah. There were plans to readapt Silence of the Lambs in the 2010s. And eventually, Hannibal planned to use it as the story for its fifth season. Mads Mikkelsen, Lawrence Fishburne, and Raul Esparza would reprise their roles as Lecter, Crawford, and Chilton, and Brian Fuller wanted to cast Elliot Page as Clarice. Hmm, okay. This would have been about 2015 as well, just so you're knowing the timeline. However, they weren't able to acquire the rights for the novel, and after the show's cancellation, the plans completely fell through. Hmm. However, there is a recent CBS series called Clarice which talks about Starling's life and work in the year following the story. Mm -hmm. The tobacco hornworm moths used for the film were given star treatment. They were flown first class to set in a special carrier, had specific humidity and heat-controlled spaces while filming, and were dressed in carefully designed body shields with a painted skull and crossbones. Hmm. When Clarice researches Lecter's background, Crawford is mentioned, but not Will Graham, the agent who identified and captured him. This, of course, is from Red Dragon. This makes some sense because Crawford would have had seniority, and Crawford is a fixture throughout all of the novels. Mm -hmm. But the primary reason the filmmakers didn't do it was that they didn't have the rights to Red Dragon, so they didn't want to present this movie as a direct sequel to Manhunter. Fair. Brooke Smith and Ted Levine actually became very close while working together on set, becoming really good friends. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. This is some heavy shit you're trying to do together. Mm -hmm. Jody then, at one point, referred to Brooke as... Patty Hearst. It's a pretty good joke. Yeah. To get in and out of the pit, Brooke Smith actually had to enter through a small door about half her size that was then covered with dirt to hide it from camera. Mm. So they didn't go down into the pit. She had to crawl through a little tunnel into the pit and then come back out. It's fine. Now, Diana, mm. are you ready for one of the most wild, ridiculous IMDb notes associated with a movie? I, I don't know. Because I'm going to read this to you verbatim. Oh, okay. Quote, The Disney animated film Zootopia is a variation of the plot of this film, in which a short-statured but ferociously determined and highly clever female protagonist from a rural upbringing has big dreams and aspirations to succeed in the male-dominated field of law enforcement, where she faces discrimination and intimidation by her male peers. She is assigned to investigate a missing persons case and enlists the help of a sly, charming criminal mastermind to help solve the case. The female protagonist also has a fear of being eaten by said criminal. The criminal psychoanalyzes the female protagonist and mocks her rural background. At one point in both films, the criminal is forced to wear facial restraints to prevent him from eating others. At first, the female protagonist is not taken seriously, but later earns the respect that she deserved all along from her peers and from her criminal ally in the end. Lambs also play a key role in each film, unquote. That is one of my favorite things that has ever been written on imdb.com. Diana, is Zootopia a children's version of Silence of the Lambs? I think it might be. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> like, it's wrong. But I don't care. I don't want it to be right. I don't want it to be wrong. It's so good. It's 
my favorite thing that I've ever learned from IMGB.com. <laughs> yes. Okay, a few more points. Woo. While visiting Chilton during the autopsy, Chilton calls Clarice what sounds like Scully instead of Starling. In a little twist, Clarice is one of the biggest inspirations for Dana Scully, per Chris Carter, the creator of The X-Files, and in the final episode of the ninth season, Mulder in jail tells Scully, quote, I smelled you coming, Clarice, unquote. Mm. During the film, Sir Anthony Hopkins briefly dated none other than Martha Stewart. But after filming was completed, Stewart broke off the relationship saying she couldn't separate Hopkins from the performance in the movie. Uh, Okay. And finally, this film was released in 1991 in Chinese astrology, the year of the sheep. Okay. I get great trivia buttons every time. Let's rate this movie. Wow. For every film, we have a specific rating system for this movie. Night vision goggles. Night vision goggles. That's a great one. That's a good choice. Yeah. Um, I guess it's your movie. You have to go it's first. A, it is my movie. I've seen this movie before. I think I want to go four and a half. Interesting. Mostly because I feel like we probably should have gotten about five more minutes of Hannibal. Yeah. And I think we could have buttoned up some of like the the ongoings. Like, I don't think we needed quite as much exposition as we got. I'm going to agree with you. Like, it's so near perfect, but... Despite all of the great things going on, all of the subtlety that's layered in, mm-hmm. it's just a little overdone. Yeah, just a Just smidge. a tad. Just a smidge. It's interesting because, like, Siskel, because he's such a hater of these kinds of movies... Sure. Nevertheless, recognized the thing in it that is causing to not be quite as perfect a movie as it could. Mm-hmm. And it's just that for all of his real intense dedication and thought to how he was going to portray the movie, mm-hmm. Dem also showed a little bit of lack of restraint. Yeah. And because of that, there's just times where it's like, we fucking get it. Can you move on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just comes down to that. But I mean, it's funny because. You know, it's like, it's so close to perfect, but the things about it, there's so many different little things in it that are perfect. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason why it endures. It's just as a whole, it, it, there are moments that it's a little bit of a slog Mm. to get you to the next point that is so good. The balance is just a little bit off, Mm. but it's also a movie that I'm like, I'm going to have to watch it again now. It's a little bit like Scream. I'm like, well, now I know what to expect. Now I got to go watch it again. Yep. So, All right, Dana. Well, we've dealt with the most, um, I think, dark movie that we're going to do. I don't know. We're going to face some dark stuff. Mm. But next time, we're going to face some darkness of a different order. Okay. Because we got to go follow two wild women on a wild adventure. Oh. Because we're watching Thelma and Louise. Ooh. Okay. I've never seen this. I've only seen bits on TV, so I've never like sat down and watched it fully. So this will be fun. I've heard of it. Yeah. And the moments from it. Sure. I'm just curious how this how this holds up, how it feels mm-hmm. contemporary and the story it's telling. Yeah. And um, I mean, I always love a movie about two amazing women. <laughs> so. All right. Well, until next time. Have a good movie.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.